Hey, welcome back to Mobile First. I'm your host, Jordan Bryant. Every week, I sit down with industry leaders to unlock how they are creating effective mobile experiences that make an impact for their businesses so that you can understand the perspective and tactics to replicate their success. If you're new to the show, Mobile First is the media child of Emerge Interactive, a digital experience company with two decades of creating highly performing digital products out of Portland, Oregon. We believe that every digital product owner deserves a clear vision, plan of action, and the right capabilities to create effective digital experiences that help to increase sales and performance. This week on Emerge Mobile First, a conversation with Lisa Schneider, Chief Digital Officer of Marion Webster. One is the curiosity to say, hey, you know, what does it mean for Merriam Webster to be a dictionary in the 21st century? What does it mean to render a definition on these different platforms? Lisa is Chief Digital Officer at Merriam-Webster, where she is focused on strategy, product, and content development, technology, and user experience. As a lifelong word nerd who understands why words matter, she is thrilled to bring Merriam-Webster's mission to life across all devices and screen sizes, anytime, anywhere. Lisa, thank you for joining us. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Sweet. So, you know, before diving into the insights, I like to spend just a little bit of time understanding your perspective, what inspires you, because I think this really helps to provide us some context when digging a little bit deeper throughout the episode. So, Lisa, what are you most passionate about in your profession and why? Probably two platforms that I'm most passionate about are problem solving and collaboration. And those are pretty broad. So, they can encompass a lot of more specific things or tasks while still providing a little bit of a true north. You know, to me, problem solving is how do I make something better for someone? So that could be any of the usual challenges for a product manager, which is, you know, how do I solve the problem of finding an elegant technical solution or something that scales? How do I solve a UX problem for my users? But because you're thinking about how do I make something better for someone, it can also mean you know, how do I problem solve for people inside the organization? If somebody uh, has a block, how do I remove that block for them? How do I solve that problem for them? Or introducing a new organizational structure or a new strategy and somebody doesn't understand it or isn't entirely comfortable or has concern, you know, how do I solve that problem for them? And then collaboration is the thing that makes great problem solving possible. To my last example, solving a problem for somebody within the organization, it doesn't necessarily mean convincing them. Right. It means collaborating to kind of find the right place. And so it might be that they end up convincing me. It might be that I convince them, but there's a but. And thank goodness they brought up that but because I would rather know that at the front of something than at the end when it's too late and you have to try to retrofit. So collaboration means, you know, including people, really hearing them, being willing to recognize when a better idea comes along. Having, having diverse teams in order, in order to get that kind of collaboration, right? Not particularly helpful to surround yourself with people that say, yes, Lisa, that's a great idea. Like, okay, I already know what I thought I thought it. Now I want to know what you think. So I think when you combine those two things, you, you really end up with a powerful way to 
come to solutions and also support people. Yeah. And I think that's very entrepreneurial minded and like that, that product owner persona. And it's really interesting because you got a BA in literature. And so now that transitioning to being the, the chief digital officer, what caused this mentality for you? What was that progression like? Well, you know, I majored in English literature because I thought it was some kind of scam I should really get in on. I, I couldn't <laughs> believe that they were going to give me a degree for reading books and writing what I thought about them. You know, I was a huge bookworm geek and it's like, they're going to give me a degree and I'm just going to sit around doing what I like, reading books and writing about them. So I did that and that was great. And then I went into marketing, which was a thing that a lot of English majors did. And I was working as the marketing director at a small publication called Bridal Guide. And we were launching a website. And I said, well, that looks really interesting. I think I want to go do that. And I think that that, that curiosity and that openness to learning is this thing that enabled me to make the transition and sort of continues to enable me to look at things in a different way or to learn new things you know, as our business continues to change more and more rapidly. So, you know, some people thought I was crazy, right? Like, oh, you know, it's a good job. You're the marketing director. And I don't know about this internet thing. And I was like, no, no, I'm really interested. I, this is intriguing to me. I want to do this. And looking back, I think that was a really good choice. But I think even if you don't make good choices, the sort of willingness um, and the courage to go try something new and say, I'm going to learn something and even if I make a mistake or even if I make a bad choice to say, you know what, I'm okay with being wrong as long as I learned something. Now I know. I know something new and I'm not going to do that again. And so how has that mentality and being a literature major influenced the way that you approach now being a chief digital officer for Merriam-Webster? I think there's two things. I think, you know, one is the curiosity to say, hey, you know, what does it mean for Merriam-Webster to be a dictionary in the 21st century? What does it mean to render a definition on these different platforms? And to be curious enough to approach that as a new problem. But I think also to sort of have this understanding that human psychology hasn't changed. You know, this goes back to literature, right? We read literature from all time periods going back to Shakespeare and, and Chaucer, and, and it still speaks to us, right? The, you know, the language is a little different and the situations are a little bit different. But the reason we still read it is because the mindsets are the same and how people react are the same. And so understanding that what we have now are different tools and the tools are great and they're really interesting, but the tool is not the thing, right? The humans are the thing. And so understanding again, you know, I'm building something for humans. How do I reach them? How do I help them? How do I use these tools in that way? I think is where my origins come in from, from being this bookworm geeky kid to, to turning into a technology geek right? It's bringing all of that together. Yeah, I know. That's really interesting. I just want to reiterate that because I think that's the nugget. It's that your perspective and coming up through uh, literature, understanding that human psychology hasn't changed. But then as we progress in now the digital age and we have mobile devices that the tools have changed. So understanding how we're able to better connect with those humans, understanding that psychology. And then now taking that into your role within Merriam-Webster, but maybe taking a step back, everyone probably knows what Merriam-Webster is, but maybe as a quick refresher, can you give us a quick description of who you guys are and what you do? Sure. So Merriam-Webster's dictionary company, of course, many people know or recognize our name. Not everybody knows that we have such a robust digital footprint. We have something like 300 million page views a month, and most of that is on mobile, including mobile apps and the mobile web. And our core product 
has and continues to be definitions, but something important I think has changed over the past couple of years in the way that we think about who we are and what we do. And it really is tying back into that human element. People who work at Merriam-Webster are incredibly mission-driven. And so we've redefined our mission to better reflect who we are and why we do what we do. So our mission now is first to propagate our rational love of the English language and second to help people better understand language so that they can better understand and communicate with the world around them. And when that's your mission statement, it really is about connecting with people and helping them. And that leads to lots of other features besides definitions and lots of ways that we can look at what definition is and what it includes. So one thing that I thought was really funny in our conversation before this, one of the questions that you get asked all the time when mentioning that you work at Merriam-Webster, I'm sure a lot of people can relate and are interested in this question, but how do words actually make their way into the dictionary? Yeah, that's a great question. Usually the question that's posed to me is, can you get a word into the dictionary, right? They're very excited. They meet me if they work at Merriam-Webster. They say, that's so cool, uh, you know, which I love. I've been at Merriam-Webster three years. I still haven't kind of gotten over the fact that people think that's so cool. And then the next question is, can you get a word into the dictionary? And I always enjoy telling people that as chief digital officer and publisher of Merriam-Webster, I cannot get a word into the dictionary. That's not how this works. We have rules. So we are what's called descriptive and not prescriptive. So that means that we don't sit around and decide if a word is good enough or what it should mean. I think that's what, what people think. And that's why they say, can you get a word in the dictionary? This isn't a judgment call. We describe how language is actually used. And in order to do that, we follow the evidence and we have rules that a word has to have widespread, sustained, meaningful, and organic use. And so we collect what we call citations, which are evidence of a word's meaning and actual use. And these citations are our data. So we have something like 18 million citations. And uh, I like to find out that we have thus been data-driven for almost 200 years. I love that. And you provided a really awesome infographic of this. It's really entertaining and really informative. So if you guys want to go check this out, that will be emergemobilefirst.com forward slash 55 to check out Lisa's episode. And we're going to have a link there so you can actually check it out directly. And I think it's a really good description of, of how it gets there. And unless you're Shakespeare, you got a little bit harder route to get there. And now we have the other side of that data. So I, I talk about how we've been data-driven for almost 200 years, but we were data-driven in creating the content that we provide. But when you put out a print dictionary, we generally didn't know how that print dictionary was being used. And of course, now that we're online, we have the data the other way, right? We know exactly how the dictionary is being used. We know exactly which words are being looked up and when and how often. And what's really interesting is that the words that are in the top lookup, say the top 20 or 30, really change very glacially over time. You know, people look up the same words that are sort of middling difficult words that they might be likely to encounter. They kind of know what they mean. The words like serendipity or pragmatic or ubiquitous, those types of words are always in the top lookups. And occasionally we'll see a different word sort of out of the blue, just jump into the top lookups, you know, at once, not climb up the list, but just jump right in. And so that means that everybody at the same time went to the dictionary to look up this word that they don't usually look up. And so we can trace that back to something that happened on the national stage or in the national conversation. So, you know, it might be today a lot of politics, but it could be pop culture. It could be the arts or literature. It could be sports, be a news headline. There's something about 
a word that was used that sent people to the dictionary. And we call that a lookup trend or spike. And when I joined Merriam-Webster, we were looking at those and kind of taking note of them. We had a feature called Trend Watch, but Trend Watch was published about once a week and kind of looked back and said, well, you know, here's an interesting word that spiked at some point during the last week. So we wrote about it and published this on the site when we wrote about it, but not when it happened. And I thought, wow, how cool would it be if we turned this into more of a real-time reporting feature? And we didn't limit this to once a week. And we talked about it in real time as it was happening. That and the fact that when I joined the company, I was a little bit starstruck because I'm working with, you know, the really biggest experts in the English language, particularly in American English in the world. You know, we have the largest team of lexicographers in North America, and I think the second largest in English in the world behind the OED. And these people are so smart, and they were also so funny. And we had this social media presence. No, really, they're so funny. I have to tell you this story, which is I was answering an email on my iPad, and I was trying to type yes with a lot of S's and exclamation points to convey my enthusiasm. And, you know, the autocorrect feature on the iPad is really aggressive and I don't type on it often and I type quickly. So I kept, you know, kind of not correcting it, hitting space and it would autocorrect me. And I was so frustrated. I went to Slack, you know, just to vent. And I said, oh my gosh, you know, I guess, you know, autocorrect doesn't want me to sound like a teenage girl. And immediately one of the editors writes back and she says, autocorrect has no idea of the power of teenage girls to change language. (laughs) And I thought, oh my God, that is you know, both hysterical and brilliant and sort of so insightful, insightful. And, right. and, and exactly what we're about, right? And so language changes and we're here to record those changes and, and to be a witness to, to language. And so that type of voice, I said, you know, why isn't that how we're talking out there in the world? Why is this hidden inside the company? And so I, I started seeing a lot of pieces of things that I thought could really combine to go out in the world and make it make a different kind of name for Merriam-Webster and a different kind of connection with the brand, with, with people. So at the time, we also had a website that was sort of partially mobile-friendly. So the definition pages were mobile-friendly. If you looked up a definition, if you looked up a word, on any device, you, you had a good user experience. But like this trend watch piece and, and other things that we had were not optimized for mobile. And so th- there was a lot of work to be done in order to sort of have this real-time data reporting and, and get our voice out there and kind of be part of the conversation and get people back to the site. And we had to really look and figure out how are we going to put all of these pieces together? What are all of the things that need to be done, all of the technical projects that need to be done, all of the products that need to be built? You know, what's the time frame and, and when can we do this and how can we do this? And so we first built a responsive website. We did a, a complete website redesign and we built a responsive website so that when we started going out with these new features and this new voice, we would have a place for people to go where they would have a really good experience. The next thing we did was built out some of our CMS infrastructure in order to support more kind of real-time reporting and more frequent publishing. And we kind of repurposed some folks internally to become a content studio and kind of put all of that together, convinced my boss at the time that it was going to be good and not dangerous for us to go out there 
with this kind of sassier voice that says, you know, you have no idea of the power of teenage girls to change language and definitely made some people nervous. It made some people nervous that sort of outside communications from Merriam-Webster were, were very staid and corporate. But I thought it was a real shame because it was kind of what people expected of us, but it wasn't what the real experience of the brand was. You know, when you worked there, people were really excited and fun and funny and having these great conversations. So we did all of these things. And the idea was that we were going to create an ecosystem. And the ecosystem was going to live on both sides of the vault. So there was a new ecosystem internally where we had different tools, different reporting structure, you know, people were deployed differently and, and different kinds of communication. We weren't using Slack previously, but I said, well, you know, we want to do all of these projects that are going to go pretty quickly, right? If you want to do real-time reporting on the words that people are looking up, people have got to be able to collaborate, you know, instantaneously and not kind of wait, not go through a middle manager and not have layers and layers of approvals because by the time you've done that, you've lost your opportunity. But we created a new system internally and then we created a new ecosystem externally where we said, you know, this is all part and parcel of an interconnected web where, you know, we have a voice, we have something to talk about, we have our trend watch, we have other features and we have a place for people to go when we go out there and talk about these things and kind of propagate our rational love of the English language. And then we have this great place for people to come back to and have the experience when they come back. So Lisa, I kind of want to reiterate some of these things because I think that there's some good nuggets here worth recapping. So when you came into the organization, you noticed a couple of things. It's kind of the unique value prop of Merriam-Webster. One is that unlocking that cultural personality that is just inherent within just the team members. And so that was interesting. And then, oh, we have this trend watch feature that allows us to tap into real-time insight of, of what's hot. And so you kind of quickly identified these unique value props and said, okay, how do I activate these? And then looking at what was in place, okay, we have this definition page that is mobile friendly, but everything else needs, needs a little bit of work. And so you identified your bigger advantages, but then stepped back focused on the basics, getting things in place. So the mobile responsive website redesign, the content studios, and then getting some social presence in place. And now you have the channels and the platform established, the ecosystem established to start to pass through that personality and leverage that trend watch feature. Uh, is there anything else that, that you would add to that that helped you get to this effective mobile presence that you have currently? I think that that's a great summary. I would say that in addition, you know, internally, we had some teams that were traditionally kind of in a, in a black box. Um, so, you know, editorial was over here and they were meant to just kind of do their work, focus on the content. That's, that's the core of who we are and maybe not have to think about other things. And then you had the development team over there and likewise, nobody sort of was talking to them. And I, I think the other piece of that was I know it sounds trite, but, but breaking down those silos and saying, you know what, we're going to have people talk to each other and we want to get, you know, I talked earlier about collaboration, right? We want to get everybody's input on this and, and we want to make sure that people have a chance to weigh in and, you know, whether that's to say, hey, this is a great idea or, hey, here's a red flag or, hey, here, that's a great idea. And by the way, here's another piece that you didn't think of. You know, we wanted to get that collaboration to really get everybody involved. And so I think that was the other thing that we did in, in terms of, you know, not, not the physical infrastructure, but the workflow infrastructure. Yeah, we think that's so important. We, we've referenced this a couple of times on the podcast, calling it co-creation. So 
how did you go about in breaking down these silos and bringing people together to create this outcome? So it happened in a couple of phases. When I joined the company, I joined the company as executive director of digital product management. That's my official very long title. And there was an executive director of digital product development who headed the development team and we were peers. Um, and the team had been there for a really long time. And I really had some ideas from other jobs that I'd had and other smart people that I had worked with in the past that I wanted to implement. And it soon became clear that, you know, that structure sort of wasn't ideal. So, you know, I do talk about collaboration. I, I believe in it really sincerely, but I also believe that at some point, someone has to be the decision maker for good and bad, right? So if something bad happens, it's my fault, but somebody has to make the call. And you can't really do that when you've got this parallel structure. So we did sort of redo the organizational flow so that the development team and the product team both reported to me. And it enabled us to put in place some new procedures that were more agile. And that's when we introduced Slack and, you know, Jira and some other things that made our workflow, I think, really much, much more efficient and much, much more productive. Just our ship rate and our put through was, you know, several times higher. And then the, the start of the content studio was also like, okay, you know what, you guys come do this and we'll see how it goes. You know, I think sometimes collaboration is, you know, you get everybody to agree, but sometimes people don't agree, but you have to find a way to include them in the conversation nonetheless. So it's like, let's see how this will go. If this works, we'll do more of it. If it doesn't work, we'll stop. So you're not committed forever. You know, it's kind of like saying to somebody, oh, I like design A. And they say, I like design B. And you say, okay, great, let's test it. Let's A, B, test it, mm -hmm. you know, and we'll follow the data. So it was really about more so changing the mindset to say, don't worry, we're not stuck with this. We're going to try it and then we'll follow the data. And then when we tried it and it went so well, everybody was really excited. <laughs> if you work at a company like Merriam-Webster that has been pretty quiet and suddenly everybody's talking about you, it's fun. Yeah, you know, change can be a little daunting, right? And and what you're talking about here, like redesigning workflow, connecting multiple departments, creating new ways to communicate through new technologies. I mean, these can be pretty overwhelming for people that that maybe aren't as excited about change. So you mentioned a phase process and getting people on board and taking this lean method approach and let's try it out. How did you frame that up and what were kind of the requirements to, to this experiment? Just, just curious how you, how you approach that. Sure. So at the time I was reporting to a man called John Morse, who was the uh, president of Merriam-Webster for many, many years. He's, he's since retired. And fortunately, John was very open-minded. And so I was able to bring in examples and sort of case studies, right, of previous jobs where I said, well, you know, here are some things that I've seen happen, right? We're, here are some cases where we did X and Y was the result. And here's why I think that this could work here for us. And let's try it. And let's try it small. And we're not hiring any new staff, right? We can, you know, repurpose people internally. So this is, you know, certainly time is very, very valuable, but otherwise it's not a huge investment. You're not committed to something. And I think it was really that act of storytelling, right? Of saying, hey, here's something that happened in the past. Here's the story. Here's the vision, right? Here's the story of the vision and getting people excited. I was fortunate that my boss believed in me and 
felt the impact of those stories and was willing to do it and really supported the effort so that I wasn't the only voice asking for this change. And again, you know, as people saw the results and understood what their role was in it and got credit for their role in it, you know, I think that's another piece, which is it, it really does take a village and you can have the best ideas in the world, but unless you really are able to execute those all on your own, it's not all up to you. And one of the things that's been really important for us at Miriam Webster is, is to recognize, you know, how much of a team effort it is. So even during the times when, you know, we might have one person who's sort of at the wheel, so to speak, of social media, that is coming from all of the conversations that are happening internally, the conversations that are happening on Slack, the content that's being created, you know, the strategy around Trend Watch. It, it's not down to me because it was my idea or this person because they tweeted or this person because it was their content idea. It's really a group effort. And I think that also really invigorates people to know that they're part of the team in the effort and that they're recognized for that. I love that. And so, I mean, just drilling deeper, it, it sounded like you made the case for trying this experiment. And then the first phase of that was redesigning that workflow and then supporting that flow and the continuation of that with communication channels so that it was, you had that collaborative uh, support with the technology through those communication channels. And that helped you then move forward with the content studio and establishing social presence, which then you could then tap on the trend watch feature that allowed you to get additional traction through those channels, which is through that mobile experience. Is that how you saw it play out or is there additional context to that that you think would be should be added? I think that's pretty much how it played out. And I think that as people saw the results, they've been more willing to put more time into it, to come up with other ideas for other things that we could do, whether that was other content types or other features on the site. And so, you know, in addition to having the sort of immediate effects that have had, it's really, I think, incented some other brainstorming because people like what's happening and they want to find ways to do more of it. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot to be said about this approach that maybe isn't covered uh, very well and that I haven't, I haven't come across, but it was your ability to understand what was symptomatic and then being able to dig deeper to understand what those root causes were so that you could build that strong foundation that allowed you to get to some of these fun things like leveraging the Trendwatch feature to be a real-time reporting insight that you could then leverage on all of your channels and, and your platform. I think that's, that's really awesome. And so with that, what are some of the results and outcomes that you've seen with this new, I guess, engine in place? Yeah, well, one of the outcomes that people talk about a lot is our social media following. And, you know, it's certainly a fun number. I, I will say, I think it can be a little bit of a vanity metric, but, but we've, you know, celebrated when we pass, you know, certain round numbers and when we passed our competition. So, you know, it's fun, I think. It's good for the team to see those numbers. Other people have talked about it, but it's not the real KPI. I think it's really important to understand what will impact the business. And you know, again, we've been around a long time. We're a mature business. We have a PL. I'm responsible for ROI. You know, I can't just do experiments because people like them and they look good. You know, we don't have a, a burn rate. So so when we get more followers, and, and I will say our following is you know, entirely organic, we haven't done any promotions around that, and they're very highly engaged. So we get a lot of traction out of that in terms of people who do click back to go to the website, but also because they're 
following us and they're highly engaged. They like our voice. They think that we're smart or that we're funny or whatever it is that they like about us. They're, they become more likely, for example, to choose Merriam-Webster as the result out of a list of search results. So if I'm searching for the definition of a word and I go to Google, Merriam's a pretty big brand. A lot of times we're the first result, but not always. And so if we're not, somebody who knows us from social media might be more inclined to click the Merriam-Webster result because they say, hey, I know them. I trust them. I like their content. You know, I want to make sure that I go to Merriam-Webster. That, of course, creates a virtuous cycle with, with Google or whatever search engine. If, if they see that you're lower in the rankings, but people are still clicking, that's a good signal. A lot of journalists follow us on social media. And so we get a ton of organic press coverage. And that both amplifies the number of people who sort of know, follow, and choose us. And it also provides organic inbound links, which again, is great SEO signals. So, you know, again, I talked earlier about an ecosystem. You know, we had the ecosystem internally that we created where we all began working together. We had the ecosystem of the products where the products were working together and the features that we built were sort of all working in tandem. And then you've got the ecosystem of the results, which is more of the same. So the results right. are all working together and amplifying each other. You know, the more people that cover us, the more people that follow us, the more people that click back to us, the more people that click on us and search. And so that's where the real ROI is and where we're really kind of watching those numbers. You built that internal ecosystem that enabled that exterior ecosystem. And it ties back to uh, your, your first comment about um, human psychology hasn't changed and understanding those, those people that you're interacting with now leveraging these new channels and understanding that ecosystem in place to how you can really optimize that. One thing that we chatted about in our, in our pre-show is finding this way to be there for them with your content in these now new mobile social channels. So can you talk maybe a little bit about some of the tactics and the KPIs that you're tracking for that? The, the big way of kind of being there in the moment, I think again, is our, is our trend watch feature. It's, it's the most obvious, but Language is all around us. And so we really try to find a balance between talking about things that are universal and not particularly timely that are just really, really interesting to people and also finding a way to tie into something that's timely, even if it's not particularly a lookup trend. So the first year that we were doing this project and we were kind of out with, with all of these new features, we had a conversation internally about the definition of a sandwich and what is a sandwich and whether a hot dog is a sandwich. And we decided that it was based on the definition, which is based on the evidence. And so we decided, well, let's, let's put together a slideshow of sandwiches. And it included the hot dog. And it was a little while before Memorial Day. And so we tweeted that a hot dog is a sandwich. And the internet went nuts. <laughs> 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 which, which, by the way, you know, just goes to show that you've got to do you and stick to it and not necessarily be trying to catch lightning in a bottle. Because if you would have asked me if this will be your first sort of viral tweet, a hot dog is a sandwich, that is not the thing that I would necessarily have predicted. And it's not the thing that we were specifically after. We just had this really fun, geeky conversation internally about, again, the definition of sandwich and we went out there, but people have deeply held feelings, apparently, about whether a hot dog is a sandwich. And so th there was a lot of conversation on social media about it. There were pros and cons. And then you know, journalists picked this up. And so we had all of this press coverage. And it was all because we said a hot dog is a sandwich. 
Yeah, we're gonna have to dig up that tweet and put it in the show notes because I think it'd be really funny to look deeper into. Yeah, it is really funny. But you know, some of the numbers are we increased our organic press coverage like seven thousand percent. It's big. Yeah. So so that was a really big number. And again, you know, if you think about the monetary value of that, right, what you would have to pay for that kind of media exposure, you know, that was huge for us. Absolutely huge for us. So Lisa, we've covered a lot of a lot of great stuff. And you know, we understand now how you've been able to create these effective mobile experiences and some of the really cool tactics that you've done that that have been kind of earth shattering with uh, the hot dog being a sandwich. So is there, is there anything else that you would like to impart on us that we haven't covered yet? I don't think so. I think this has been fantastic. Is there anything that you're working on right now that you're most excited about that you want us to follow or to go check out? I'm not going to tell you what we're working on right now. Okay. Because we're, we're a small privately held company and there are just a couple of dictionaries out there. So it's, so it's pretty competitive. We're still a content provider. And so I think we have a lot of the same challenges as all content providers, which is how do you cut through that clutter? You know, for us in particular, I think a lot of people think that a definition is a commodity. And, you know, we clearly don't think it is. We have this huge team of lexicographers. They're hard at work. They're constantly reading and updating definitions, adding new senses or adding new words. And a dictionary that is constantly updated is not the same thing as a dictionary that has been licensed for the last 15 years and has not been updated. But that's not something that's really clear to people. So I think kind of getting that message out there, you know, getting people attached to Merriam-Webster in a way that they understand that, you know, a random answer and a Merriam-Webster answer are not necessarily the same thing. You know, that continues to be a challenge for us. We're a small organization. And so kind of getting to scale with a small team is a big challenge, you know, being really smart and innovative in how we do things and making really rigorous choices about what we can work on are things that we're focused on. But we're always looking at, you know, things that we have. So one of the pieces of information that we have is what we call first known use. We have a date for the first time that we have evidence of a word being used in print. And you, you can see that I slowed down. I was really careful about that wording because words are, are spoken usually before they're printed. And so we'll never know when a word was first used. There's rarely rarely evidence or, you know, people want to say, okay, if I, if I get this word into the dictionary, can I have credit? Somebody, somebody once asked us, can, can you send me a certificate <laughs> that I made up this word? No, no, we cannot. But, but we do have the, the, the first new use of print, you know, that changes. That's called antedating, right? Finding a date before the one that we have. So new evidence turns up, but we created a tool called time traveler. So if you go to the website on any, you know, on any device, you can click through from the date of first known year. So you can just go to merrywebster.com slash time traveler. And you can see all of the other words that were first used in that particular year. And it's really, again, kind of fascinating in a, in a word nerd sort of way. But once I can tell you that once people get to time traveler, they consume like nine pages in a session because it is so fascinating to just scroll through and be like, oh my God, this word is that old or this word is that new or Look at these words that chunked up in this particular year. That tells me a lot about that year, you know, what happened then. So it's a really fascinating tool. And it's another way that we've taken data that we've had for a really long time as Merriam-Webster and created an, an interactive tool for people to use and explore. 
Uh, what a cool resource. I will definitely be linking to that in your show notes, Lisa, so that we can go geek out on that, all of our word nerds as well. And then make sure for everyone to tune in this Friday for a rapid fire round where Lisa's going to be sharing some more of her most valuable resources. All right. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I love being able to to dig through really the progression through Merriam-Webster and, and how you came in and and the process that you went through. I, I think that it was so smart and how you you established those roots that allowed you to get to some of the delightful experiences that everyone can now experience through all these mobile channels. So again, thank you so much for taking the time and being transparent to share this with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Hey, thank you for listening. For additional resources on how to increase sales and performance with your mobile experiences, head over to www.emergemobilefirst.com and select the Get Free Resources button there at the top and gain instant exclusive access to tools and resources from all of our guests aggregated into one single place just for you. Now I'm looking forward to digging in with my next guest, but until next time, think mobile first. Thank you.